Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, parents. Welcome back to the show. It's Allison, and I have another guest interview for you today. Uh, today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Jackson. She is currently the VP of Programs and Outcomes for Brain Balance, where she designs and implements programs focused on strengthening the brain to optimize human performance for a variety of ages and abilities. Dr. Jackson graduated from Life University as a doctor of chiropractic in 2001. You can find her recently peer-reviewed research in the Journal of Advances in Medicine and Medical Research 2021, Effect of the Brain Balance Program on Cognitive Performance in Children and Adolescents with Developmental and Attentional Issues. Jackson has appeared on national broadcasts, including ABC's The Doctor Show, NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt, and has contributed to numerous national print outlets, including Forbes, Business Insider, Today, Huffington Post, and many more. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jackson. <laughs> Thank you. Great to be here. Well, you know, this podcast is based on Adlerian psychology, and, and he was really into the biopsychosocial combination when trying to understand human behavior. And on the podcast, we talk a lot about the social and the psychological, but there is this biological piece, and that's really a big part of, of where you're putting your efforts. So can you talk to us about how the, the brain impacts our kids' learning and ability to settle down and get what's done? <laughs> done? <laughs> So much. That's hard to do in a sentence or two. I feel like we could, you know, no, do we, we'll, we have time to dig in. We have okay, time, okay. time to, have time to dig in, but I don't think parents often realize that they, that they, we, not that we have to as parents expect everyone to be a neurobiologist, but wouldn't it be helpful to understand that there is this organ that sits on top of our kids' necks that, um, that we have to be aware of how, it, how they might be struggling with it. 
And, and watching a child's behavior and actions can actually clue us into some insights into what's happening in their brain. It's easy to forget that the brain controls everything we do from our physical actions to our thoughts and emotions. So if you're noticing your child, for example, really down, really negative, you know, bad mood, I can't do this, I don't want to do this, that's not just simply a mood that's a mood brought on by what parts of the brain are firing and activating and so as a parent and you know my kids are, are 12 and 14 so i'm sure i annoy them to no end with this strategy that's your job your job is to annoy them at this age <laughs> so, good at it. so good at it but when i see that out of the norm behavior for my kids i always take a step back to say okay are they well rested are they well fed have we have they drained all of their brain resources so i'm asking them to do something right now that they're not equipped to do in that moment and when our brain runs out of resources we get negative so think about how you yourself feel when you're exhausted, things that don't normally bother you might push you over the edge. You're going to be more likely to lose your temper. And that's because your brain has run out of the resources to do higher level things like control your reaction when you're frustrated or upset. So this is huge when it comes to our kids in homework time is, are we asking them to sit down and do their work at a time when they have the tools and resources to do that? Or are we asking them to do something that they're not prepared to do in that moment? That's, you know, that to, to just get that paradigm that these resources dwindle over the day. I know I've heard of this thing called decision fatigue. And even for like high level executives and whatever, they talk about poor decisions coming at the end of the day or the fact that Barack Obama always wore a blue suit and had seven almonds every night because he needed to keep the decisions to politics and important world matters and not to what am I going to wear today? You know, because it really is a limited, it's a limited resource and it does wear out. It does. And, you know, I always, when I picture our attentional capacity, I picture money. We've got a set amount of resources. And how are you going to spend that money throughout the day? And there's things that we can do that cost less and things that we can do that cost a lot of money. And you know, there's something as simple that our kids love doing is, is playing Fortnite or gaming. It's not that I think gaming is bad, but it's a resource that costs a lot of money to our attentional systems. So when we think about how can I set my child up for success, which in turn sets me up for success for how the evening is going to go, it's thinking about, okay, yeah, if I'm going to let you do a little bit of gaming, let's do it after you do homework, not before. So you're not spending those attentional resources on some, I don't care how you do on Fortnite. I care how, how it goes when you sit down and, and work on math on a concept that you're struggling with. And so I always like to try to equip people with a, you know, some simple knowledge in a way that hopefully makes a lot of sense so that we get to make better strategic decisions as a parent and have a better understanding of why we're seeing what we're seeing with our kids to help set them up for success ultimately. Yeah. So I, I love that being strategic by, by knowing what we're up against. And, and you say that, um, you know, one set formula for one kid maybe doesn't apply to another child, that it's, it's, that it's more individualistic than that. Absolutely. And, and it's individualistic day by day. The same child doesn't have the same resources day in and day out. Again, picture yourself. There's days where we're more focused and there's days where we're more distracted. When we think about other things that's happening in life, when you're stressed, it's going to spend some of those attentional resources because your brain's worrying about the other thing. And it's going to be pulling attention from what you're doing, spending some of that, that attention money. Um, so 
the same child isn't going to have the same abilities day in and day out. And as parents, that can be hard to navigate. We tend to look at our kids and say, okay, you did this today. So I expect the exact same thing out of you tomorrow. So if homework went well tonight and now we're sitting down tomorrow night and it's a hot mess, it's easy to get frustrated and say, you know, I know you're capable. You did this yesterday. Are you just choosing to have bad behavior right now? Do you not care? What's the issue when the issue may be, you know, that there's something else going on, you know, maybe they didn't sleep well last night. Maybe they haven't eaten right before. So their brain has the energy to do what you're asking to do. So in those strategies to, to set a child up for success, you know, the simple things I always think about is sleep and food. Those are things that our brain needs to re-energize, to re-get back on track for the day so that you've got the resources to support what's needed that day. I encourage every parent to go online and find out what the sleep range is for their child's age, because most of our kids are getting about an hour too little sleep and parents don't realize they don't know what is the healthy amount. And again, there's a range and there is individual differences, but most of us are shocked to find out that we're actually sleep depriving our kids. They don't know. They're not doing it intentionally. They really just don't know how much kids need. Yeah. And, and, and then our kids are doing so much during the day. And again, think of how you yourself feel. If you've had a really busy weekend and you've stayed up later, think of how you feel on Monday morning, you're dragging and you might have a harder time sitting down and focusing. You might be more irritable. When we see, we talk about these fluctuations day to day in our kids. That to me is also a, a red flag to look a little bit more closely at some of these areas because we all have what we need to be successful, but if there's areas of immaturity and development, it takes more resources to do the same thing than your peers, which means you're gonna drain those resources even faster. So a parent that has a child that's struggling might see even more volatility or change or difference from day to day. And then it's hard to know how to set those expectations and navigate when again, you did it yesterday, you're, you're not today, which is it? Are you capable or not? And it's not that they're not capable, but it might mean that everything needs to align even more perfectly. You know, I say all the time, you know, the stars and the sun and the moon, everything needs to line up perfectly for success. And for some kids, that's, that's even more so the case. It's how much of a buffer or range do you have? Can you go without that extra hour of sleep for one night and be fine the next day? Or does that push you over the edge? Or can you get away with that for a week before it pushes you over the edge? It just sort of depends. We all have a threshold of, of how much we can take before we lose our temper or have a harder time being productive. But some of these attentional, let's talk about the difference between a reasonable expectation for attentional capacity by age. And then the part that I really am inspired when I'm reading your work on your website is these are capacities that can be trained. You know, so I, you know, I'm often telling people, you know, they say, oh, my child has an attention deficit problem. I go, it, it means their attention span is small uh, now, it, you know, or it's it's doesn't mean that it can't grow with exercise with 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 giving it some challenges and changing those brain structures. So give us some expectations on how do we change those capacities besides just waiting for kids to grow? 
Yeah. And, you know, I always love to flip the narrative and, and rather than thinking of it as a deficit, it's how much of an opportunity do we have to make things better than where they are is because these things are changeable. And actually, um, we have new research that just um, was published this week looking at the ability to change the attentional capacity um, for kids with ADHD. So um, it is it is possible, which is so exciting and, and so hopeful. Um, and, you know, to me, it's all about not practicing what you're deficient in, but strengthening the platform that everything functions off from. If practicing attention and focus was going to get us there, all kids would be great at attention and focus because if they've been in school, they've been practicing it for a long time. But it's understanding all of the different things that go into that contribute to attention and focus. And to me, one of the biggest things is our sensory system, is how we take in our sensory input. Because in order to have focused, sustained attention, I need to have the ability to block out distractions. But if my brain is oversensitive to noises and every time I hear something, it's pulling my attention and focus or oversensitive to touch. And I'm hyper aware of that, that seam in my sock that's twisted and driving me nuts. Those are our sensory system can spend our attentional resources depleting our ability to pay attention. Um, and so to me, one of the, the most important things to helping to contribute to strengthening attention and focus is improving how the brain processes and takes in sensory information. So it's not always practicing the thing that you want, but it's what are the pieces that help get you there. Uh, that this, <laughs> I find when people want to go for dinner and all these restaurants have the TV monitors now, like that's like a really common thing to have the t these five and six TV monitors up at restaurants, you know? Um, and if I am the person that is looking at someone and behind their head is the television screen, even though I couldn't care less about kickboxing or whatever's up on that stupid screen, I have a hard time paying attention to the person. I'm, I'm so sorry. I feel so rude right now. I'm trying to listen. I don't even care about what's on the screen, but it's motion and sound. And, and it's, it's very hard for me to, to pay attention. It is. And our eyes will naturally go to movement. Our, our brain is naturally for safety going to check out sound. There was a slam. I need to check it out. Am I, am I safe in my environment? Um, but then another piece that to me is really fascinating that goes along with this is our ability. It's called task switching. So it's our ability to switch back and forth between what we're doing. And so you and I are having a conversation, a noise catches my attention. So I shift my conversation to figure out what that noise was. How easily does your brain revert back to the original thing that you were doing? That's something that, that we can really take for granted is the really mature, efficient brain can task switch very easily. The brain with ADHD has a harder time task switching, meaning you're doing something. Let's say I'm working on my homework and my phone dings with an alert that I just got a snap image, chat, whatever. I'm a friend. And so now I'm looking at my phone and I forget to come back to the thing that I was doing in the first place. The ADHD brain has a harder time task switching. And so they're, they're going to react the way all of us would is checking out the noise, checking out the movement, but then just not returning to that task. Um, and task switching is something when we talk about what spends our attentional resources, task switching has a huge cost for all of us, regardless of if you have ADHD symptoms or not. And so when we talk about strategies to set ourselves up for success, to set our kids up for success, 
it's minimizing all the distractions so that they're not task switching. So no matter how much your teenager tells you that having your phone with them helps them during homework, it doesn't <laughs> get them an old school calculator, not their phone. It's too distracting. Such a good point, trying to trying to pry them off. So give us some rules of thumb, again, knowing it's individual and that we can grow, but there are some general rules of thumbs of what out of, a, of attentional capacities, um, either before a child needs to take a break or like in total, like, yeah. and this again, because I know parents, how many times have they said, you only had three math questions. If you would have just sat and paid attention, you would have got them all done in 15 minutes. It's been an hour and a half. Why are you still working on this, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's a reasonable amount of time to expect for homework and, and how much time before you need a break? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question, but I'm going to buffer it. Yeah. The rule of thumb is essentially take their age and double it. So if they're eight, about 16 minutes of attention is reasonable. However, that's healthy on-track development without other things that have drained their resources. And so to me, it's not about the rule of thumb, it's knowing your child. So to get a sense of what your child's ability and capacity is, subtly time them. And it's not watching them doing something they love, it's watching them do something that takes their attention and resources. And so next time they're sitting down and working on homework, subtly time them and watch Start it when they get focused. And some kids have a really, and adults have a hard time getting started. Once they get started, time them and watch to see how long they work before the wiggles come out and the, I've got to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. Do I have to do this? Why am I learning this? I'm never going to use this in real life. Time that window of how long they stay on track without redirection. That's your baseline. That's your expectation. And then it's learning how to re-engage from there. The brain loves sensory input and the brain loves movement. It wakes the brain up and engages the brain. So use that to buy yourself more attention time for homework. So if your child's attention window is 10 minutes, honor that window and know you can push past it, but you're not going to be as effective when you push past it. Meaning I'm a big, like if I start something, I want to finish it and I hate taking a break in between. So if I'm working with one of my kids on math homework, I don't want to stop until we finish math homework. However, if, if my child's window is 20 minutes and we're at 40 minutes, yeah, maybe we only have one question left and we're about ready to finish it. We could get through it if I push what is he getting out of it in that moment? If I'm way past his attention window, we're going through the motions and it's not productive. So what you can do to increase that productivity is at their window, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, take a quick break. And that break can be a minute. It can be two minutes. It doesn't need to be long. And, and you're going to switch gears and you're going to engage the muscles to re-wake up the brain. So if you just take a quick break of, you're stopping and now you're going to do, you know, lunges around the kitchen. You're going to break out the jump rope and jump a hundred times. Something that engages the muscles and spikes the heart rate is going to help to buy you a few more minutes of attention and focus with the brain. You know, it's, it's funny how we've, have like an old saying or an, an unfounded belief, but it's just part of our tradition that we think that if you sit still, you'll focus more. And yet a lot of kids actually need a little bit of movement. They say the brain likes movement for learning. It, it opens up different pathways, right? So I, you know, that's why they've got kids on those little balls instead of sitting on flat chairs. And in some of these New York schools, they have high tops 
where they have like a little foot pedal underneath that the kids can rock their feet instead of these static desks. So so this sit still in focus, it could be like wiggle in focus is 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 maybe a fair thing too, isn't it? It is. And you know, we tend to apply rules to the kids that apply to us. And what I mean by that is when we think about development, high level development is control. It's our ability to inhibit. So because you and I as adults have more control over things because our brains have had a lot of years to develop, hopefully we're, you know, a little, little higher function there. So for you and I, we probably do need to sit still to focus. However, our brain's naturally going to seek movement once we've hit our threshold. That's when we're going to get up. My big excitement in the day is I wander to the mailbox to check the mail. When I start to lose focus, we will get up and wander over and grab a snack or a cup of water or use the restroom. We'll naturally seek movement when our window of, of focus has ended. So because we typically need to sit still to focus as adults, we tend to then set that expectation on kids. But that younger brain does benefit oftentimes from movement because it's firing networks and pathways in the brain that's waking the brain up. Um, so as a parent, understanding that that wiggle is OK. <laughs> now, if it's wiggle to the point of if we're bouncing on the ball and we're falling off the ball and now the ball's rolling all across the room, that's another story. But, you know, in that whole meeting your child where they're at approach, allowing wiggle and movement is OK. Um, uh, individual differences around background noise. And so, and I'll tell you my own personal story. Uh, you know, of course I've had years to like learn how I work better and I've hired efficiency people and I studied the brain stuff. So, I, I mean, this is just my anecdotal stuff, but uh, you know, uh, my children like to study in the library in those carousels. And I'm like, I could never in any of my university years go sit quietly. I prefer a coffee shop. I liked going somewhere like I would go to like whatever the student, the student um, coffee shops or, or whatever. Um, and I liked the bustle of the background noise. I found that I could focus better there. Whereas if it was really quiet, I'd be like, what's that noise? What's that noise? What am I doing? I can hear my heartbeat. I, I <laughs> and so I don't know if there if that is just a subjective feeling of comfort or whether or not my brain likes to have some what I call like white noise, but it's chatter and coffee cups clinking, but it's kind of white noise. I'm not paying attention to anything that's being said. And I know some people put music on and other people think music is a distraction. 
or do it in front of the television, which I would definitely, that would distract me. But I mean, different people, different, different environments, right? Different people, different brains, different ways that you process sensory input can change that. So when we look at the maturity of how you process auditory information, that can influence whether a noisy environment is more successful or less successful for you. So the way we take in the sounds around us in order to have the ability to block it out, again, that's control, right? That's inhibition. Can I block it out and ignore it? First, I have to have really high level development in that area in order to be able to determine I want to use it, I don't want to use it. And so somebody that has higher level, strong, mature auditory processing can tend to be more successful in a noisy environment because you have the ability to filter that out. So if you think about, you know, when we think about attention and focus, there's a great analogy of thinking about it as a flashlight. And there's lots of different types of attention and focus, but that that focused attention is usually what we're referring to when we talk about attention. It's sort of, you know, wherever I shine my flashlight is what I'm paying attention to. It's the same thing with auditory attention and auditory processing is, is there a floodlight lighting up all of the sound around me? So I'm processing all of it and taking it in or am I shining a spotlight on the specific information that I want to? So if I'm a child sitting in a classroom and the kids around me are coughing and sneezing and shuffling and and whispering to each other and the teacher's talking, mature auditory processing can block out the extra to focus auditorily on what the teacher's saying. More immature auditory processing isn't going to be able to be selective and what they're taking in. So they're gonna kind of hear it all equally, which is gonna make it really hard to follow along in a classroom. So all of that to say, the younger a child is in either age or development, the quieter I would encourage the environment to be so that we're not asking them to have to block and filter and focus. It's gonna spend more resources. Let's just ask them to do the one thing that they need to do. Now, as you get to higher level brain function and you noticed in yourself that helped you hyper-focus by blocking things out over time and with development, you may find that that's the case, but that's typically not where kids start for a successful area. And just because it works for your brain that way doesn't mean it's the most successful way for another brain. And we now have more commonly uh, seeing those um, um, noise-canceling headphones that kids wear in a busy classroom if, if the clatter of the classroom is distracting for them. And uh, you might have been, that might have been weirder the one person out back in the day, but those are becoming far more common. You see them all the time. And then once you fly with them on an airplane, you don't want to fly any other way. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. Uh, so how do, we, how do we help then have kids... Um, grow these capacities since these are these are skills and capacities that are that are changeable. Um, how do we how do we support that growth and change? Yeah, you know, I'd start with sensory exposure and sensory experience is, you know, sensory pieces is not just a four year old that doesn't like dirty hands and tags and textures. We all take in sensory information all day, every day, and we tend to fall into routines and patterns in our lives. So if you think about what your sensory exposure is on a daily basis, it's going to be pretty similar. You do meetings like this, you do editing, you have your social routine, you've got your family routine. Um, But the brain loves exposure to new and different, and that exercises different pathways. So for our kids, making sure that they're getting a varied sensory exposure experience. So running around barefoot in the grass, going to the beach and in the sand and with the waves, 
finding ways to vary sensory exposure and experience is a way to exercise and engage the brain. And the more we do those things, the stronger those pathways become in our brain. And the more we exercise them, the more we're better at processing that information. It takes, you know, the first time you experience something new, it takes a lot of resources. You experience that same thing more and more, and now it doesn't take as much resource to process. Your brain knows what that is. So doing lots of sensory exposure can help to build the brain, to understand the environment and to take it in without draining as many resources. You know, when we think about a sensory experience in the classroom, the school day, it is so much for the kids. So they come home exhausted and drained. And so exercising those pathways can help. And then it's also in order to, to pay attention, it takes the brain multitasking, not multitasking, but using multi-pathways all at the same time. And so blocking out distraction while I'm using memory and fine motor skills and taking notes, it's a lot of load on the brain all at the same time. So loading the brain is another thing that I love to do to exercise pathways. And when I say load, I mean, add a challenge to what your child's doing. And so if you're you know, going for a bike ride, that's a physical activity where they're having to balance and coordinate the pedaling. Now add load to it by um, doing something where they have to think on top of that. So maybe they're doing math problems, or you're asking them to do spelling words. Um, it's, it's, it's multitasking your time. So they're getting load for what they're doing. So they're engaging more pathways at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does it have to be a load that is like that specifically academic or could it be, um, you know, tell me about the what's going on in the book you're reading right now? It, yeah, it doesn't have to be academic, but it, it to be most effective with this approach, something that requires a little thought. So counting backwards by threes. Yes. Yes. And tell me about what you're reading in the book does require thought. Like think about the book and tell me what do you think is going to happen next? How do you think she was feeling when that happened? When we look at networks and pathways in the brain, when we've done something multiple times, it can become a set pattern of how things fire. So for example, if I had you do a jumping jack right now, you could do a jumping jack and have a conversation with me. No problem. That's a set pattern. Your body knows the coordination of how to do a jumping jack. You can do it without any thought at all. So then to add load and challenge is, okay, now let's change that jumping jack pattern. So what if we did a jumping jack and every other time you did a double hop instead of just one hop? So now you're having to pay attention and think about it. That's exercising the network and pathways in a different way. So you're having to put effort in. We just challenged your brain and challenges where the brain grows. And so, you know, it's taking the everyday things that we do and finding a way to turn the dial on it a little bit. I, I just had this very experience where I've gone back to, to playing guitar and I'm in this little jam group and they were playing a song in a different, different chords than I normally pay, play them because we're playing together. So I'm like, oh, I normally play that in E. We're going to, so, but I'm supposed to be singing, but I can't pay attention to the new chords. Even though I know the lyrics, I, I can't do the lyrics and the chords at the same time. I'm like, I have to stop playing if you want me to sing. I can't, I can't seem to, that load was just too much. So now I have to learn the chords separately, but it, that was <laughs> definitely load bearing exercise for me. <laughs> Perfect example, better, better analogy or example than, than I came up with on the spot. And your brain loves that your brain benefits from that. And now your challenge is to do that new piece until you can do it. And you know, when a new 
pattern of, of neurons has formed when you can sing and do that at the same time, you now have a new set pattern of firing. And it's the brain goes through that same process with everything. When a child is learning a new sight word, the first time they look at that sight word and they're sounding it out, they're firing specific neurons in the brain. And then each time they look at that same word again, they're firing those same network of neurons to tell me that's the word cat. And eventually they see it and they don't have to sound it out. It's a sight word when that is a now set pattern of how those neurons fire based on the input. And so, and then now that child's ready to learn the next sight word because they've got that one down. And so the brain grows when we find that challenge point. And so that point where you can't do something easily, make it a little more difficult, and then you're going to, to grow and build new networks and pathways. Is there any um, gender brain differences that come into play with this? Not dramatically so. I mean, when we look at, there's really not attentional differences um, major ones in males versus females. Um, you know, you see in the literature where there can be a difference in the bridge that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, the corpus callosum in, um, you know, so you'll, you'll see, um, you know, that maybe the male brain doesn't multitask to the same degree at a high level. But the truth is we don't truly multitask. That's task switching. It's how effectively we task switch. Um, so I would say overall, not, not dramatic differences with that. And so talk about some of the, the interventions that you're doing at the center, because you're, you, you are located, I mean, besides you've got virtual resources for, for parents and supporting, but you also got drop-in centers. How would you work with a client if somebody presented and said, my child has attentional issues and I, you know, can, can you help? What, what would the, what would it look like? What does an intervention look like? So, or a treatment, I guess inter that's maybe not the right language, but you know what I mean. You know, we, we just call it a program. It's a program yeah. to exercise and strengthen the brain. Attention is very high level development. And so if attention and focus isn't age appropriate, isn't maximized, there's a reason. Something didn't come together at the optimal rate and way that's creating these complications and higher level pathways. So from our approach, we don't wanna to jump to practicing what you're deficient in. We wanna go back and say, okay, why didn't that develop in the way it should in the first place? So we're really going back to earlier pieces of development to say, how can we make things more effective and more efficient? And what's fun with that is when we approach things that way, you don't see just that one thing change and improve. We see an array of things change and improve. So for example, looking at some of um, the research that's come out from Brain Balance in the last couple of years is, when we do what we do, we see improvement in cognitive function, which is going to include attention and focus, reasoning, impulse control, working memory. We see an increase in a child's emotional regulation moods, so how they handle upsets and frustrations and social interactions. So it's not just changing the one thing, but when you mature and strengthen multiple areas of the brain, you see a more widespread impact. So overall, the child will just seem more mature in their behaviors and interactions, which includes being able to pay attention for longer and better impulse control. So are they doing spreadsheets? Are they playing with balls? I mean, what, what does it look like? If I was a fly on the wall, what, would it, what does it look like? 
it's physical, it's active, it's engaging, it's utilizing the same concepts of what we're talking about here today is what grows and builds the brain is sensory input, physical activity, load and challenge. So students and adults doing brain balance, we're gonna load and challenge the brain. And so while you're doing the program, you're gonna be wearing a series of specialized sensory gear. So the brain is processing light and sound and touch while you're doing physical activities that require coordination and timing. We do a lot with the visual system. The visual system is fascinating and we can look to the visual system to get a sense of, is there opportunity for improvement? How efficient are your eyes when they move and shift, which can not only impact reading fluency and attention and focus and comprehension, but it's also an indicator of, hey, the visual system's complex. And so we've got an opportunity to improve this complexity, which will translate into improvements in, in other areas as well. Wow. I want to talk about the nutrition, feeding the brain. You know, I take these um, medium chain triglyceride oils, you know, <laughs> Um, I'm sure there, you can explain what that is to the listeners, but what, like, what would be a good brain diet? You know, it's so nutrition is so interesting to watch the trends over the years, right? When growing up back in the eighties, there was such a focus on low fat, but it turns out the brain needs and loves fat. That is not a bad thing. There's just different forms of fat. So the oil that you're referring to is a great healthy fat that can help the brain I picture it as like an insulator. It's like the bike helmet for the brain to help protect it and help it run smoothly and efficiently. The brain loves whole healthy foods. The more highly processed something is, the harder it is for your system to utilize it, to break it down, to pull nutrients from it. So the brain needs a variety of nutrients and it needs whole healthy foods. And so um, the trend in nutrition backed by the research currently is you know, the less we do of processed foods, um, things that can be harmful to the brain are things like nitrates and certain preservatives, um, food dyes, whether or not you have a reaction to it, it's harder in all of our body to process it. And our kids can be really sensitive. Um, so if you're having a focus on incorporating more whole foods, so like, you know, from the, the produce section at the grocery store. Um, mm -hmm. Fewer things that are, are packaged. If you're focusing that way, you're naturally going to have fewer foods that have the food dyes, the nitrates and preservatives in them. Um, and it's, you know, feeding kids is, is hard. I always said, if it wasn't so hard, I probably would have had more, but um, it's, it's a lot of work for, for a lot of years. You know, when kids are picky eaters, parents can put so much guilt on themselves and it's so stressful. I think a great way to focus with that is rather than feeling like, you know, oh gosh, I'm a bad parent if I allow my child to have these things, but think about what you can add in rather than focusing on what you're taking away. So if at every meal you can add in just a little bit more, you know, maybe an extra piece of broccoli or you know, some fruit if they love it, looking at opportunities to add in more variety of whole foods. Um, especially if a child is a picky eater, we can have gaps in nutrients. And I'm always a food first person. I don't love taking supplements myself. However, if your child is a picky eater, there can be some gaps and holes in the nutrients that they need. And so that is a time where it becomes more important to me to make sure they're getting those resources from somewhere. Because in order for the brain to grow and develop, it needs all the tools 
to do that. And so um, whole healthy foods, if they are a picky eater, I'm working with somebody that can help make sure that you're rounding out those pieces. Um, so the brain has everything it needs to grow optimally. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Is there anything else you want to make sure that our parents today uh, hear that in terms of how they're going to handle their kids' uh, homework load and their attention and try to have a successful year without too much conflict? You know, to go into homework successfully is give the kids a break after school. We've asked them to sit for seven, eight hours a day. We've asked them to hold still, pay attention. Even though that's not physical activity, that's draining and tiring for the brain. So give the kids a break before you sit down and do homework again. Have the kids at all ages move. And that's harder with our teens, right? Our teens want to come home and grab their device and go in the room and close the door. And when they come down, they're going to be exhausted and groggy and sluggish and probably ornery. That's not a really productive time to really dig into <laughs> the tough math assignment or whatever they're working on. So um, finding time for movement, again, and the things that I do to annoy my kids is we always talk about use your body to turn on your brain, turn on your muscles to turn on your brain. And so if you're needing to sit down and focus to study, to learn something new, move first, and then that's going to be more effective time spent with your brain and then give breaks. And so don't sit down for two hours and try to knock out all the homework at once, break it up. And then also make sure you know, when the kids are drained and tired, they're going to be more negative. And so making sure the brain has the fuel it needs to support what you're asking it to do. And so making sure the kids have a protein snack after school with some good healthy fats, you know, you could do toast with peanut butter on it, you can do a protein shake, um, you can find something even for those picky eaters that that is going to provide some protein and good fats. That's going to help the brain focus as well. Um, the hungry brain can't make good decisions that can't override impulses. Um, so movement and fuel through food is going to be two of the easiest things that you have at the tip of your fingers to help that brain have the tools it needs to focus. And just anecdotally, I found with my girls, they like to do their homework in the morning before school. Like when they were in the younger grades, when you only have, you know, 15 minutes of homework, they found they'd like, they didn't want to do school anymore after the time. Like, well, so long as it's done before it's due, I don't care when you fit it in. And they actually found the morning, which we kind of forget if you're time strapped and screaming at your kids to get up and get dressed and brush your teeth and have your breakfast. It might not be, you don't maybe want to squeeze in one more thing, but sometimes kids are early risers and there's, you know, legit morning mornings available too. hundred percent. They just got a full night's sleep. They're waking up so fresh and focused. So it's possible that they can knock out the same thing in a fraction of the time when they're well rested, as yeah. long as it doesn't cause too much stress for me, yeah. that, would, that would stress me out of, Oh my gosh, I don't know how long it's going to take me to do that till I sit down to do it. So did I give myself enough time? So it's balancing that, but absolutely think about it again, think about yourself morning times for me, my favorite is on the weekend when the household is asleep and I've had my coffee and I'm fresh and there's minimal distraction. That's when I write because that's when I'm really focused and super productive. Thank you so much for your time. Can you let people know where they can continue to learn about your research and your work and get some of these resources? Yes, brainbalance.com. The new research will go live on the website here this week. Brainbalance.com. We've got centers all across the country. We do have um, a virtual program as well, so you can take advantage from the program from home. Um, you can learn more about me at drrebeccajackson.com. All right, and I will put both of those in the show notes. And thank you so much. Yes, thank you. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. 
This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.